So everyone knows the verse, Romans 8.28, right? And we know all things work together for good. For the good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Hopefully it's going to be on the screen. We read that verse, we quote that verse, and we often encourage each other with that verse, and rightly so, because we should believe what God says when God says that He's going to work all things together for good for those who love God, for those who are the called according to His purpose. But later on in the same chapter, he says this. He says, As it is written, For your sakes we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And, and you look at this, and, and, and those two verses that I quoted there at the end, verses 36 and 37 of chapter 8, they're in the middle of a section where Paul is wanting to encourage his readers that nothing can separate us from God's love. That God's love towards us is permanent, that God's love towards us is complete. That's what he's wanting to do. And in the midst of that, he says, listen, even though the Scripture is clear about us as God's people that we are led like sheep for the slaughter, that we are those who expect to suffer for our faith. Now, we talked a little bit about this last week when we talked about this reality that faith expresses itself both in, in expecting God for victory, expecting God to do great things, and also enduring difficulties when we go through those difficulties. But it's important that we recognize this is it. This is, this, it's going to be difficult for us to follow Jesus, but the difficulty in no way shows that God loves us any less or doesn't care for us or isn't working. In fact, often the difficulties are how we know God's doing something here. He's working under the surface. He's working this somehow together for good. But also notice that it says it's, He's working things together for good for those, plural, And one of the mistakes that we make as believers is we tend to look at our Christian experience through the eyes of our own life only. We forget that God is doing a good work among us corporately, which means sometimes God allows us to suffer for the benefit of somebody else. Sometimes God calls us to suffer for the benefit of somebody else. Haven't we experienced that in, in many of our relationships? The most intimate relations we have often call us to suffer for somebody else's benefit. And so this idea of being led like sheep to the slaughter, it's this idea that, yes, God's going to allow us to go through things where we suffer for the name of Jesus, where we have to be willing to go through difficulties, but there's a reason for it because God's working it together for the good of those who love Him. And that fits perfectly with what the author of Hebrews is wanting to bring up here. As we've seen all throughout the book of Hebrews, there's this theme of endurance, and that theme is just echoing loudly in this chapter. Notice it says, verse 2, talking about Jesus enduring the cross. Verse 3, about Jesus enduring hostility. Verse 7, talking about us enduring chastening, which we'll see in a minute, Jesus did as well. And this idea of endurance, it's this idea that, you know, what, what God's called us to is not a walk in the park. It's a marathon. And one thing I know about marathons, they're hard. I, could, I don't think I could ever run a marathon. In fact, Ollie told me once, Ollie's a marathon runner, you guys, many of you guys know that, and Ollie told me once that actually marathons are really bad for your body, and I thought, there's my excuse. 
<laughs> you ever have to do that? It's bad for me. I wouldn't want to do that. I'll just eat bacon. That's good for me. But it takes endurance, and, and, and endurance is difficult. It's this way, one of the reasons I don't like to run, because you start to run, and after a while, it starts to hurt. Your ankles hurt, your knees hurt, your back hurts, your lungs are burning as they're expanding. You're thinking, why am I doing this? But that's the exact picture that, that the author of Hebrews is bringing to us. In fact, when he brings us up in verse 1, when he says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, he's doing two things. One, he's pulling back. The therefore pulls us back to verse or chapter 11 where the author kind of gave us all these great Old Testament examples of people enduring by faith, people who had saving faith. And he's calling them this great cloud of witnesses, but he's also drawing a word picture that maybe is difficult for us to see in English, but it's definitely there in the Greek. This word picture of a stadium. If you can picture sort of this, this uh, maybe the Olympic Games and these runners running this marathon race, and that race is going to end with a couple laps in the Olympic Stadium. And so the runners of the race are running and they're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. The stands are heaving with witnesses, people watching them run. But more than that, listen, there are people in this picture, in this metaphor, this great cloud of witnesses are people who have ran the race before us. There are people who have actually already finished the race through faith. And so what the author is wanting to do here is he's wanting to say, listen, this is what you can expect. You've been called to run a race, and all these that he's listed in chapter 11, all these have, all these have run the race before you. They've all done this. Now, just as a side note, don't get confused. It doesn't mean that everyone in heaven is watching us do what we do. I think if you're in heaven, you're watching Jesus. You're just enjoying being with the Lord. But there is this picture of the fact that all those who have who are in glory, who are seeing God face to face, all of them had to run this race. They all had to run with endurance. And that's the point he's trying to make. He's saying, listen, because all these people had to run, guess what? We need to run as well. And he tells us in verse 1, here's how running has to begin. Listen, he says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Now, interesting, when they began to have the Olympic Games, and they would train for the Olympic Games. In fact, the word for exercise uh, that's used often in the New Testament means to basically to train naked. They wouldn't wear any clothes. I'm not suggesting that, just to make sure I'm being clear. But they would do this because obviously they didn't want anything hindering them from the exercise. And so the idea of laying aside any weight is basically have as, as, as carry as least as possible. And interesting to me, because when we talk about weights, and notice there's a distinction between weight and sin. Therefore, when he's talking about weight here, running the race and, and getting rid of weights, he's not talking about getting rid of sin. That's, we'll talk about that in a second. He's talking about things that maybe we'd be allowed to have or things we're allowed to wear, but we shouldn't. So I know when they run the London Marathon, you have these guys in onesies or in superhero suits and all kinds of stuff, and they're raising money for a charity, so it's fine if they do that. But the guys who want to win don't dress like that. They wear running gear. They have the best shoes. They wear the lightest clothing. That's what they do. And so he's saying, listen, if you're going to run, what has to happen is you need to make sure you can avoid even the things that are good that might hinder you in this race, but also you need to lay aside or cast aside the sin that easily ensnares us, the bad things that trap us. 
Interesting. He says, the sin. And, and it seems like he's referring to something specific. I think what he's referring to here is the sin of unbelief. Because one of the things that came up earlier in the book of Hebrews is the sin of unbelief. If you're going to run this race with endurance, what has to happen is you have to know you're called to run it. You have to basically be willing to lay aside those things that are going to keep you from winning that race. And you have to be willing to believe. I, I think we sometimes think belief is, is beyond our choice. Like I don't choose to believe or I choose not to believe. It just some, some, somehow happens to me. That's, I don't think that's biblical. I think there's a choice that we have to make about faith. Yeah, we can't make that choice unless God does a work in us, but we still have a, a choice that we have to make. And I think sometimes we think, well, oh, I don't really feel like I believe, so I'm not sure if I do believe. Well, you're just choosing to believe your feelings instead of choosing to believe what God says. And I don't say that to be harsh. All of us do it. I'm not pointing any fingers up, fingers pointing back at me, but let's be honest, let's be real. There's a choice to be made here. And I believe this is probably what the author is referring to, laying aside that sin of unbelief. That unwillingness to just say, God, you're worth running after. But he says, and this is the important thing, he says, looking unto Jesus. And I think this is important for us to get it because it's important that we, we see that what the author's wanting to do is not just show us in Hebrews that Jesus is our Savior, but he's also the best example. That's why we kind of, I, I've titled this message today about um, Jesus ran a better race. The race he ran, that's what we're looking for. So when it says in verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the idea of author and finisher is that he's the one who, who pioneered the faith. It's kind of like there was this 26-mile track for a marathon that needed to be ran, but it was through the jungle, so Jesus ran it with a machete, hacking as he went to clear a path for everyone else to run. And the fact that he's the finisher of our faith, the, the word there really means perfecter. He's the one that makes sure it comes to fruition. So it's this reality that we look into Jesus because the truth is, the, the, the truth is, is that he's already run the race for us. He's won it for us. That's why we look unto him. Interesting, it says that he did this, he was a finisher, uh, who for the joy set before him, what did he do? He endured the cross despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus knew that his race was not just living as a person for 30 years under his, his earthly father Joseph learning carpentry. It wasn't just teaching people for three and a half years and raising up disciples who would plant his church at Pentecost. It was to go to the cross Luke 9 gives us a picture of Jesus where it says that he sets his face like a flint towards Jerusalem. He just steely jawed, looking to Jerusalem. He's going straight to the cross. That's where the Father sent me. That's the finish line. That's where I'm going. He endures towards the cross. Now it says that he does this despising the shame. And then after he endures the cross, he sits down at the right hand of the Father. Now this is important. It's important for a couple of reasons. One is, the author's wanting us to see Jesus as this example of endurance, as someone who's pushing forward for a reason. He's running his race with endurance. He's motivated by something. He's not stopping his pursuit. Now we see this. The, the Apostle Paul talked about this uh, himself, running a race. Listen to this. In Philippians chapter 3, I'm going to read from the NLT a couple of verses. 
Philippians chapter 3, Paul writes, No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past, I look forward to what lies ahead. Notice he says, I I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. Paul's talking about this heavenly prize of seeing God face to face, of being with his Savior for eternity. He says, I'm pressing towards that. I'm racing that direction. I want to cross that finish line. Interesting, though, he uses the same metaphor in how he shares Jesus with other people. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, again from the NLT, he says, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. He says, don't you realize that in a race, everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize? So run to win. Interesting that he, both these, in both these kind of situations, he, he brings up this metaphor of racing, of wanting to know God and be with God forever and wanting others to know God and be with God forever. It's like he's saying, okay, here it is. I'm racing for the finish line. The one thing that I want to do is I want to know God. I want to be with Him. I want, to, I want to just enjoy Him forever. But as I'm running that way, I want to take as many people with me as possible. And so I want to run in such a way that they can run with me. And I, and I, and I get this picture of, of Paul sort of as a marathoner. Don't know if he actually was an athlete. Sounds like from what we know from church tradition that he wasn't. But I can just see him kind of as this marathoner. And kind of there's, there's a person who's running in the wrong direction. He goes, hey, stop, stop, stop. Hey, why don't you run this way with me? This is where the finish line is. And he doesn't stop running, but he, he gets that person and kind of runs with them so they can run with him to the finish line. And another person is kind of running with a limp, and he comes alongside that person and puts his arm around him, and he goes, he runs with them. And he sees someone who's, who's basically can't walk at all, and so he prays that he's healed, and he gets legs to run, and then he runs with them to the finish line. He sees someone who needs desperate for some water, and he slows down and gets some water. He keeps pressing towards the Lord, but he's pressing on to wanting to bring as many people with him as possible. See, that's what Jesus did for us. He, he went to the cross because he knew at the cross he would pay for our sins. He endured the shame of the cross, and don't think it wasn't shameful. He endured the shame of the cross to save us and to give us an example. So why does Jesus do this? It says clearly he does it because of the joy set before him. What was that joy? Do you remember when Jesus is talking about sort of the, the end of days and when God's going to actually judge the world in Matthew 25? He talks about those who, who are doing what they do as unto the Lord. They feed the poor. Um, they preach the gospel. They do what they do as unto the poor. And he says that when that person faces Uh, faces God, God's going to say something to them. Here's what God's going to say in Matthew 25, 21. God's going to say to that person, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you a ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Interesting, in the book of Zephaniah, there's this great picture of when God's kingdom will come. That Zephaniah the prophet uses to encourage the people of Israel. And he says, the Lord your God is in your midst. The mighty one will save. He will, notice, rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. You know, I can't think of anything more amazing than to think that God would take delight in someone like me. 
I can understand me taking delight in God, and, and, and sometimes I don't, and I think, why don't I? I should. But the idea of God taking delight in me, I think, how could that be? Why would God look at me and sing songs? Why would God look at me and find joy? But that's exactly what the Scripture says, that God's going to be, how God's going to be towards His, how God is towards His covenant people. He rejoices over them. This joy, this, this the fact that God would look at us and say, I delight in you, I want you, I'm so glad you're mine. That joy is a joy that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit have enjoyed forever, for eternity past. And what happens is, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we're invited into this. So when the Bible says, listen, that Jesus endures the cross despising the same for the joy set before him. It's that joy of being reunited with the Father, of that joy of seeing us enjoy God and being enjoyed by God. It's the joy of love eternal. See, what we're talking about here is the fact that Jesus ran a better race, and he shows us what a better race is by the way he endured the cross. He endured the cross for us. He wanted us to have the same joy that he's always had for eternity past. So he endured the cross. But it also says this in verse 3. It says also for us we should consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself. Thus we should become weary and discouraged in our souls. Do, we, do you realize that the suffering that Jesus encountered, that that suffering came at the hands of humanity? Do you guys understand that? I hope we realize that. The Scripture doesn't kind of sugarcoat that. It's really clear that Jesus died at the hands of evil men, people who rejected him, who didn't see him as he was. He died. In fact, everyone but just a small handful didn't think he was who he said he was. And even the, those who did think he was who he said he was didn't understand how that worked until after the resurrection, until after really even more fully Pentecost. But there's this reality, listen, that he suffered at the hands of men. And I bring this up because sometimes I think we, we are surprised when men treat us badly. I can't believe they said that to me. Why would they ever do that thing to me? Why do you expect something different from people? If Jesus, who was the perfect man, who was love incarnate, was treated badly, why would you think you, who are a sinner, would be treated nicely? I'm surprised when people were actually nice to me. Because there's something about us, guys, that really, we, we, we want to think that we're better than we are, but we're not. Humanity is broken. And that's why our relationships are broken. That's why our nations are broken. That's why our cultures are broken. Because humanity is broken. And we don't treat each other as we should. Jesus suffered this way, but he endured it. In fact, it's interesting because the author then says in verse 4, you've not yet resisted this kind of treatment to bloodshed, striving against sin. And he's talking specifically to these Hebrews who, who basically remember, that because they're being persecuted, they're saying, that's it, I'm out of here. I, I don't think I want to follow Jesus anymore. If I'm going to have to suffer, or maybe even die for my faith, maybe my faith isn't worth it. And so they're kind of going back to Judaism. And they also are saying, really, Jesus is better. And you shouldn't be surprised that, if he, that, that you're suffering at the hands of men because he suffered at the hands of men. But there's something else here that I think is important. When it talks about, listen, when it talks about that Jesus is enduring this suffering, it's this idea that he 
was willing to go all the way to the cross, no matter, no matter what men did to him, he was willing to endure that as long as it was the will of God. The Bible says this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. It says, And being found in the appearance of man, Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Remember when he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane before he's crucified, the night before he's crucified? He says, Father, if it's your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And when he was in agony, Jesus prays more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. That is striving against sin to the point of bloodshed. God, I'm, I'm willing to follow you, to trust you, even when it hurts. When it hurts so bad, when it's so stressful that my sweat turns to blood. Think about that. That's how Jesus endured. Now, he then gets in in verse 5, and this is what's going to look at the last, last kind of main point for the rest of this chapter. He gets into this issue of chastening. And, and he kind of switches the, 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 the subject from here's, here's what you need to do because of what Jesus did to here's what you need to make sure you keep doing. In other words, G, he talks about Jesus enduring the cross and Jesus enduring hostility. Now he talks about you enduring chastening. Notice what he says in verse 5. He says, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. In other words, he's saying, listen, you've gone through this difficult time and you forgot. What does the scripture say about the difficult times you go through? And then he quotes Proverbs chapter 3, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. I want you to notice the verbs that are accredited to, to God in this, okay? Accredited to the Lord. It says that the Lord chastens, the Lord rebukes, the Lord scourges. Think about that. Do you guys know what those things each mean? To chasten is to basically, it's to correct. Don't think punishment, think correction. But it is a word that actually means this would have been the image that they would have came to their minds when they read this. It's the image of a schoolmaster who carried a rod in his hand. And if the pupil wasn't doing what he needed to do, he'd say, ah, stand up, little smack on the hand. Now, we don't do that anymore, and for good reason. But that's still the picture that it's point painting. I don't want you to miss this, that he's not talking about just... You know, th this picture, he's not, he's not drawing the, the sort of politically correct picture of God who just is like a really nice daddy who only talks sweetly to his children and please, I'll give you some candy if you obey me. That's not the picture the scripture draws of God. It draws a picture of a father who knows exactly what his children need and therefore is committed to that. Now, here's what's interesting. He says really clearly in quoting these verses, and this is why these verses are saying this. In fact, he says it plainly. Look what he says in verse 7. He says, if you endure chasing, if you just kind of go through this, he says, God then deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? Now, what's the answer to that question? The, the answer the author expects is, well, of course, every father chastens his child. That's not always the case, though, is it? Part of my story is the fact that, and I don't want to dishonor my dad's memory here, 
But the truth is my dad never chastened us. And I don't mean just that he didn't use corporal punishment. I mean, we just never got busted for anything. Mainly because my mom had left and he had four boys that were rambunctious that he had to look after. I'm the youngest of four. And he was working two jobs, so he was just never around. But I remember distinctly when I was about 14 years old and I had got suspended twice in about three months for fist fighting. Then my dad said to me, if you get in another fight at school, if you get suspended again, you're busted. He was really just fed up. And so one day after school, I got another fist fight. And it was a bad enough fist fight that my shirt was covered with blood from this guy's nose. And I go home after, I go actually to my dad's business after, after work, and I'm scared. I didn't get caught, I didn't get caught, I didn't get suspended, so at least that was good. But I thought, he's going to see the blood, he's going to freak out, and he's going to know that I got in a fight and I'm busted. And so I go to my dad's business, he had his small business, and he was there reading his newspaper, no customers. It's May in the desert in California, and I have a jacket on covering up my shirt. And he says, what are you wearing a jacket for? So I unzip my jacket, and he's like, what happened? And I said, I got in a fight. And he sighs. He goes back to reading his newspaper. And he says, did you win? And I said, yes. He says, don't do it again. And at that moment, you know what I knew? You know what I knew at that moment? I thought, my dad doesn't give a rip about me. He doesn't care. He really doesn't care. Now, that was a child's kind of conclusion. It wasn't completely true, but that's what it felt like. I thought, if you cared, you'd do something. Because the reason I was fighting at the time was because we were homeless, living in my dad's shop, sneaking in when his, his boss didn't know. And I was just so at a, at a mess mentally that I was just, I'd fly off at that. At any way someone looked at me funny, I'd fly off and beat him up. And I think, man, if you cared, you'd do something about the situation. If you care, you'd punish me because this is bad. You'd discipline me. I, it's not good that a guy's blood is all over my shirt. And I remember feeling radically insecure. It's funny because this is one of the things that I see happening, not with just teenagers, but I see happening with, with parents and children all the time, is that we're so wanting to be their best buddy that we forget that we're giving them no security because they have no clue what the boundaries are because we get to let them get away with murder. And there's a comfort that comes with when here's the line, and if you cross it, there's going to be consequences, and there's going to be consequences because I love you. And so what he's saying here, he's saying, listen, that was common thought, even among non-believers for centuries, until Dr. Spock in the 50s. Common thought. Here's the reality. He says, listen, in verse 8, but if you're without chastening of which all become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. If you have the old King James, you know what it says. You're bastards. In other words, listen, God chastens us because he loves us. What he's doing there is not listening. Our chastening is not about punishment. It's about training. It's not about atoning for our sins. God doesn't chasten us. He doesn't cause us to go through difficulties or, or deal with us when we sin because he's trying to get us to atone for our sins or pay for our sins. He's trying to assure us that he saved us from our sins. 
He's trying to make it clear to us that He loves us so much He won't let us continue in our sins. He won't let us get away with it. Come on, you who are parents already, don't you know this is how it works? You know it's how it works. And we all get it wrong as parents. If you're a parent, you know how easy it is for us to get it wrong. We all get it wrong. But you know what it is? When you see your kid doing something you know is bad, is dangerous, is destructive, what do you do? You say, I cannot allow you to do this. Even if it means the fellowship is broken temporarily, you take that risk, you, you handle that pain. Why? Because you love your child. Do you think God loves us less than that? And that's what the author's trying to get across to these Hebrews. He's saying, listen, don't you know, if you are going through a time of chastening, it's because God loves you. Be assured it's only because God loves you. You know what else that means? Listen. It also means that whatever he's doing or whatever he's allowing, he's allowing out of love. Now remember, the situation we're talking about here is not chastening that might come in the form that we experience it. So when we talk about chastening or correction or how God trains us through painful circumstances, sometimes those painful circumstances can just simply be the consequences of our actions. You know what I'm saying? You know, you, you, you know, God's dealing with you. Maybe you're drinking more than you should be drinking and God's dealing with you. And the, one of the ways he deals with you is you drink way too much and you're hungover and you go, what an idiot I am. And then God says, and then all your family or friends say, yeah, you are an idiot. And your witness is ruined and you go, what did I do? And you repent and say, God, forgive me. And just the consequences of your sin chastens you. Or maybe the consequence is this, there's that conviction of God's spirit. I mean, I, I pray, I pray. I say, God, especially when I find myself struggling with a certain sin, I'll pray, God, let your hand be heavy upon me. Like the psalmist talks about experiencing before he came back to the Lord. God, let your hand be heavy on me if I'm not falling after you. And sometimes it's what it is. It's just that heaviness of, man, I know I'm not where I'm supposed to be. You're just miserable. But sometimes, listen, the chastening comes in the form of a persecution or people treating us badly. And sometimes we think, wait a second, God, I'm, not, I'm standing up for you and I'm getting treated badly. How is that chastening? How is that correction? This is why. Because it's not just about punishment. It's not about just correction. It's also about training. It's also about getting ready to race. I don't know if any of you guys have been involved or how many of you guys have been involved with with sports, organized sports, but if you've had a coach, you know the coach puts you through pain. I played American football when I was in high school, and the, the football season started with a thing we called Hell Week. Three-day practices in 100-degree weather. Three times, it was horrible. I mean, literally, people threw up every time. You, you just, you work so hard. They've actually now banned three-day practices because some people died. That's how hard they were pushing it in, the, in some of these state schools. But the point was the coach was not trying to be, you know, he wasn't trying to be masochistic or something. Basically what he was doing is he was wanting to get people ready for the games. He knew we would be miserable if we went to the game and we just couldn't last more than one quarter because we were exhausted. He knew we'd be miserable if we kept getting knocked around because we were weak and we weren't lifting weights. He knew that he needed to push us, and so he would push us to the point of pain to get us ready for the game. And the, and, and the writer here is saying, listen, this is what God does. He's allowing this persecution because he's wanting to do something. He's wanting to be ready for this race that he's called you to run. 
Now, it's important that we see, though, as well, that, that even though our chastening doesn't provide for our atonement, in other words, it doesn't wash away our sin, and our chastening is just for our assurance, it's important that we recognize that Jesus' chastening does provide for our atonement. The Scripture says this, listen, in Isaiah chapter, did I write it down? I hope I did. Maybe I didn't. In Isaiah 53, you can look it up later, talks about, God talks about how we were, how Christ was chastened for us. The chastisement for our peace was on his shoulders. We have peace with God because Jesus was, ch- was chastised. I want you to keep that in mind because it's going to be important at the end. Now, he also says this, though. Look at verse 9. He says, Furthermore, we have human fathers who corrected us and paid, we paid them respect. Shall we not much more be readily uh, in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? This Father of spirits is just a way to kind of contrast between the Father of the flesh. In other words, we have fathers that biologically cause us to come into life and, of course, God the Father brings us to life spiritually. But the idea is this. He's saying, listen, our fathers got it wrong. They didn't always discipline us the way we needed. They didn't always train us the way we needed to. But God always gets it right. You can know that whatever you're going through as a Jesus follower, whether it be persecution, whether it be you reaping what you sow, even if you feel like, well, my consequences seem more severe than someone else's consequences, God is allowing that because He loves you. And as a good father, He's wanting to train you. He's wanting to prepare you. He's wanting to make you more able for the race. Do you believe that? This is what He's doing. So it's interesting because our submission to God when we're in this point of chastening is not, it's not based on, oh, okay, this isn't so bad. And it can't even be based on, yeah, but someone else is going through something worse than me. I mean, I've said that. Lots of people say that. People go through worse things than I'm going through. That's true, but it doesn't take away the fact that what you're going through is difficult. It's painful. Trying to act like what you're going through doesn't hurt, doesn't stop it from hurting. It's okay for you to say, I hate what I'm going through. It's really painful. It's good for you to be that way. Read the Psalms, man. You see the Psalms full of honest, God, what are you doing? Why am I going through this? This is really hard. We're supposed to pray like that. What motivates us, listen, to submit to God when we're going through that suffering, whether it's persecution, when we're going through that chasing, whatever is the cause, what causes us to submit to God is His character. Our submission is motivated by his character. God, you're good. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is good. We believe that he's good. We read the book of Job and we see that what the, James says is at the end, that God is indeed merciful and gracious. God's good. We see in Jesus, someone who endures the cross for the joy set before him, Jesus loves because he is love and because he is loved. He's so loved by the Father that whatever the Father calls him to do, he endures it. He trusts the Father. Not my will, but your will be done. I can trust in the Father's will because the Father's good. He calls us to do the same thing. This is what the Scripture talks about. This is what Peter means in 1 Peter chapter 5. The whole book of 1 Peter is about suffering as a believer. And here's what it says in chapter 5. Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Do you feel like God's hand is heavy upon you? Humble yourself. 
that he may exalt you in due time. So how do you do that? How do you humble yourself? This is how, casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. God, I'm under it. This is so hard. I don't know, why do you have me here? What are you trying to do in this situation? I need to know, God, what you want to correct me and how you want to form me, what you're trying to accomplish because this is really hard. So God, I'm just casting my care on you and I'm just trusting you to do something. That's humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God. That's following the example of Jesus. Lastly, I'm almost done. He then says, For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed, uh, for, uh, seemed best, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but, uh, I'm sorry, let me read that again. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness, righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Do you understand what he's saying here? He's saying, listen, God's character is what motivates our trust in Him, but listen, it's not just His character, it's His plan. Our hope is motivated by His plan. All right, God, You are using this trial, You're working together so that we can be partakers, that we may be partakers of Your holiness. You're working this together so that we might yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Do you again see the corporateness of this? Guys, listen, it's important we recognize we tend to think, I just want to be happy. I know when I graduated from high school, uh, in American high school, we have these yearbooks, and uh, when you get out of high school, you're 18, and everyone kind of says, well, here's what your life ambition is, and you kind of put that underneath your picture, and that's kind of what you do. It's in your annual, your yearbook. And, and like half the people say, to be happy. That's their ambition, to be happy. Don't worry, be happy. That's their goal. Just to be happy. But you know what happiness is? You know what the word actually means? Happiness means, it means temporarily avoiding pain. That's what it means. Happiness, it's like the idea of happenstance. Like your circumstances mean you somehow, whew, I dodged the painful thing. Oh, I'm happy. I dodged pain in my relationship. I'm happy. I dodged pain in my financial situation. I'm happy. I, I, I dodged pain to my physical body. I'm happy. But guess what you know when you have those kinds of happinesses? Pain's going to come back around sometime. Because one of the things we all experience in this life, whether we're Christians or not, whether we believe or not, is pain. God is not interested so much in your happiness as He is in your holiness. You know what holiness is? Holiness is being set apart. It's being utterly distinct God is uniquely holy. He's three times holy. Holy, holy, holy is Lord God Almighty. He's uniquely distinct. But also, listen, He is making us holy so that we can be with Him forever. He makes us like Him. He became like us, a man, so that He could make us like Him so we could be with Him forever. He's making us holy. You know what holiness is? You know what happens when we're finally like God and we're with Him for eternity, it's to experience joy forever. Look what the scripture says. Psalm says, the psalmist said in Psalm 1611, you will show me the paths of life. Your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. 
This is what God has for us. See, God's not promising you a pain-free existence. In fact, he's saying, listen, no, I'm not going to waste any of your pain. I'm going to use, I promise to use every single bit of pain you go through, whether it's self-inflicted, inflicted by others, the consequences for actions. I don't care where it came from. I'm going to use it for your good and for the good of others. I'm going to close with this verse and this story. Genesis chapter 50. It says, but as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Do you guys know that verse? Do you know where it's from? Joseph. And if you know Joseph's story from the book of Genesis, you know what happened. Joseph was the favorite son of a father. His brothers rejected him, sold him into slavery. He goes, he's falsely accused. He's put into prison. Ultimately, he's exalted, and when he's exalted and his brothers are desperate in need and they go to Egypt, the place where Joseph was <laughs> exalted, what they find out was, oh no, this is, this is the brother that we sold in the slavery that, whom we presumed was dead, and he's alive, and he rules. And when they find out he's alive and he rules, he says to them these words, you know what? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Because what happened is when Joseph was exalted, guess what happened? The entire nation of Israel was saved, all 75 people at the time of them, as was all of Egypt saved. Why? Because he suffered. Because he endured that suffering. Because he let God do what God wanted to do through that suffering. Guys, listen. This is what God wants to do with us. Do you know why people, I think, have a hard time believing the gospel that we share you know why people have a hard time believing in the Jesus that we share? Not because our lives are so difficult, but because our lives are so easy. Because we as believers, unlike Jesus, we, rather than being homeless, we are wanting bigger and better houses. Because unlike Jesus, rather than being willing to suffer for the sake of others, we want to protect ourselves. Unlike Jesus, who says, it doesn't matter what Rome does to me. The truth is, God the Father is the one who's sovereign. His kingdom's going to come. We freak out anytime politicians do something that we don't like. And so people look at us and they go, you know what? I don't know if I want to believe in your Jesus because it doesn't seem to, it doesn't seem to be that different than me. But when we say, Lord, not your will, not my will, but your will be done. Not my will, but your will be done. We say, Lord, we're going to trust in you. We're going to follow you. We're going to do whatever it costs us to run this race and to bring as many people across the finish line as possible. We're going to live this way. You know what happens? People go, wow. We treated you bad, and you're forgiving us? Why? And we can say to them, because what you meant for evil, God meant for good, because he wants you to know him. This is what God's doing.